the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Infectious diseases are as varied as their symptoms, yet they have one thing in common, a devastating impact on society. As COVID-19 continues to spread around the world, many ask, how did this happen? Today's guest, Dr. Michael Greger, explains where viruses come from and how we can stop them. Dr. Greger is a founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, a physician, author, and speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. Dr. Greger is the author of the new ebook, How to Survive a Pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Greger. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here again. So, Doctor, with the coronavirus pandemic, just about everyone's attention has turned to viruses. Let's try to understand what is happening. First, how and why do viruses spread so efficiently? Well, um, uh, this, these particular pandemic viruses um, uh, is because uh, the people become infected and infectious before they start showing symptoms. Unlike SARS, the first deadly coronavirus outbreak of the century, um, in that case, uh, you developed fever cough before you became infectious, so you could you know, stop people at airports, uh, do some fever monitoring and prevent the spread. But with this disease, as well as flu viruses, um, uh, days before you start showing symptoms, you feel perfectly fine, but maybe exhaling virus with each breath. That's why um, there's been these social distancing measures to kind of lock down the populace to prevent um, as many chains of transmission as possible. We hear about virus mutations. What does that mean? Viruses, um, uh, well, these particular viruses, uh, both the flu virus and uh, COVID-19, these pandemic viruses, have RNA as a genetic material, unlike DNA like us, which lack the kind of proofreading capacity. So every time um, a virus infects a cell and releases millions of new viruses, each one is just a little different, has these tiny mutations. That allows it to adapt to new hosts and even jump species, jump from one species to another. Um, and uh, when we have a new virus uh, jumping from animals for which we have no pre-existing immunity and everybody's susceptible, um, that's how a virus can spread rapidly around the world. And that's why it's difficult to uh, kind of nail these viruses down in terms of vaccinations. The reason we need a flu vaccine every single year is because the flu virus mutates to be subtly different one year from the next, so we have to keep targeting it. We have yet to know um, whether the same will be the case with uh, viruses, uh, with the vaccines made to the coronavirus. Do you think that the coronavirus has mutated and is in a different form than the one that originally came here? Oh, absolutely. In fact, there are 10 different um, strains that have mutated um, around the world. This allows us, this kind of genetic fingerprinting allows us to track the spread of the virus. So, the, so for example, that's how we know that in New York, for example, it actually wasn't uh, people arriving from China, but arriving from Europe um, that triggered the New York outbreak. And so you can see kind of in real time where this virus is spreading. We do not yet know um, whether or not these mutations of the virus um, actually have affected its ability to transmit or its ability to make people sick. Um, but certainly um, it's within the realm of possibility 
that uh, a viral strain will arise uh, from the current virus that is even deadlier or even more easily transmissible, but that isn't necessarily the case. Just because the virus is mutating doesn't mean it's necessarily getting worse. Well, that's what I was wondering because now we're hearing that it's affecting children differently. And I was wondering if it could have been a mutation or just the fact that it's something we've noticed. In fact, it's not uh, a new phenomenon. So uh, there were cases coming out of Italy uh, months ago of the so-called Kawasaki disease, this multi-system um, inflammatory um, a disorder. We're just seeing more and more cases as more and more children are being affected. But it's important to recognize um, that this remains an extremely rare phenomenon um, and that the youth, unlike the influenza, that's one of the blessings of this virus versus a pandemic flu virus, is that children in general tend to be uh, uh, tend to be kind of uh, less likely to fall ill, less likely to suffer a severe course. Um, and it's really um, the age distribution is such that um, really those at high risk tend to be over age 65. And with these coexisting uh, so-called comorbidity, um, such as, you know, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, um, and so kids tend to be uh, uh, be spared in this pandemic. Um, and so if anyone's going back to school, I think we start with school children, um, though uh, we need to keep, uh, uh, even if they don't themselves get sick, um, it's possible they could uh, spread the virus to grandparents. And so anyone over the age of 65 or anyone in contact with those over the age of 65 needs to continue um, to be very cautious um, in terms of their contact, coming in contact with potentially infected individuals. Doctor, we hear so much about herd immunity, and, and there are people that believe that we should just all go out there and whomever gets sick gets sick. Can you explain herd immunity and if that is an effective approach? Well, I mean, that's the only way you stop a pandemic is herd immunity, and that's having a critical portion of the populace immune to the virus. An infection can only burn through a population if there are enough susceptible individuals for the virus kind of viral sparks to jump from one person to the next. Immune individuals who can't get or transmit the virus act as uh, like fire breaks to slow the spread, like, like control rods and a nuclear reaction to, to break the chains of transmission. Now, ideally, this is accomplished through mass vaccination. Vaccines are a way to fight fire with fire, using the virus to fight the virus by generating the benefits of infection, immunity, without the risks, uh, disease and death. Uh, but, you know, it's humbling to realize, though, that, you know, historically, the average vaccine has taken more than a decade to develop, 11 years on average, uh, with the average failure rate of 94 um, uh, percent. Uh, and without a vaccine, herd immunity is really only achieved the hard way through mass infection. Um, but, look, you can't get the virus unless the virus can get to you. Um, so I talk about in the book, uh, you know, all the common sense measures we can take to reduce our risk. Um, uh, you know, we should only expect, uh, you know, herd immunity will happen when 50, 60, 70 percent of the population is infected. So even at the end of this pandemic, there's going to be a significant ch chunk of the population, like, uh, you know, a third or more who never gets infected, never risks a severe course. And we want to do everything possible to be in that that 30 percent, 30, 40 percent. And how can we do that? Um, you know, that's, you know, respiratory hand hygiene, all the things we've heard about. So how would we know if we have immunity? I mean, I know testing is important. I actually had an antigen test done 10 days ago, and I've yet to get my results. So how yeah. are we able to do this and, and get the information that we need? Well, yeah, unfortunately, um, uh, unlike other countries around the world, we did not get our testing regimen up. We're still lagging behind other countries. You know, I mean, it's important to take a step back and realize, you know, well, look at the, you know, if you look at Australia, for example, they just hit a, a, a milestone. They had 100 fatalities out of the entire continent. 100 people have died right now. They have, you know, 10 times smaller population, but we have a thousand times more deaths. We're, you know, like 100,000 compared to their 100 in Taiwan. They have a population about 23 million. They have suffered seven deaths, less than 10 deaths. And why were these other countries able to control the disease where we're not? In fact, uh, out of all the countries in the world, although Brazil may soon overtake us, we've had, uh, we, we've had the most um, infections, the most deaths. 
Um, and and wait a second, what is going on? And part of that um, is really just a failure at a federal level um, uh, to put in just these, uh, you know, the, the the what has happened in other countries. Not only the um, uh, the, the the lockdowns of the populace, the social distancing, but also this the the testing, the contact tracing, um, the 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 necessary um, uh, the necessary measures to prevent the spread. Of this virus, and even a, a day, a week, anything could um, dramatically reduce the number of people that become infected. Um, and so, right. you know, we were kind of late in the game, but this is no, uh, but uh, no excuse not to uh, to play catch up, particularly if there's a fall wave on the way. So all of this makes us feel completely out of control, as you can imagine. And we feel like there just isn't anything that we can do. But there are. You had mentioned common sense measures that can help us empower ourselves. So let's talk about that. What can we do to protect ourselves and to give ourselves the best fighting shot of staying healthy? Well, you know, it's important to realize uh, the the risk factors um, for COVID-19 severity and death, obesity, heart disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes. Every single one of those can be controlled or even reversed with a healthy enough diet and lifestyle. So, you know, it's it, this is the time. Take advantage of the time. If you are lucky enough um, uh, to be able to, um, to, to, to have that um, extra time, you're not... Um, uh, you know, essential personnel out in the world um, risking infection is to, you know, uh, to, to stay healthy, to take this time to get sufficient sleep, keep active, reduce stress, stay connected, uh, albeit remotely, friends and family, eating a healthy diet. Um, uh, um, so, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this should be our excuse. You always want to start a meditation practice, always want to start, you know, um, exercise classes. This is the time because how healthy you are, um, uh, can uh, can reduce the risk of not only getting infected in the first place, but then being in the you know uh, in that uh, rare you know one in two hundred fifty cases that unfortunately does not survive this illness. So it's really getting to the root cause. Instead of putting so much focus on not getting this virus, it's really making ourselves healthy, building our immune system. That's our best weapon. And, you know, uh, one of the reasons why we have such a severe um, uh, um, uh, outbreak here in the U.S. is because excess body fat alone is a risk factor, even independent of diabetes. So those with um, uh, severe obesity, which is like weighing more than 215 pounds at an average American's height of five foot six, seven times the odds of ending up on a ventilator. Even just being overweight puts you at risk. Having a body mass index of 28 or more, that's about 175 pounds at the average height, appears to nearly six times the odds of suffering a severe COVID-19 course. In the United States, the average BMI exceeds 29. So even being skinnier than the average American still leaves you with so much excess body fat that can put you at risk. Um, and this is because uh, people with excess body fat have greater systemic inflammation, the fat covering the heart itself, um, something called the uh, hypoventilation syndrome, having a restriction of breathing caused by you know excessive fatty tissues in the upper body. Um, uh, but look, we've been months in quarantine. This is the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obesity is not something you have to be have with ever. This is the time to control your blood pressure, um, control your body weight. Um, and so then that could be the silver lining of this pandemic. You uh, survive this pandemic and then you are going to have healthier habits um, uh, going forward in the future to protect yourself against chronic disease. Doctor, where are these new viruses coming from? And is a pandemic like this going to be our new way of life? Will there be more and more potent viruses coming down the road? You know, over the last few decades, hundreds of human pathogens have emerged at a rate unprecedented in human history. So wait a second, emerged from where? Mostly from animals. The AIDS virus is blamed on the butchering of primates and the bushmeat trade in Africa. Uh, Mad cow disease was because we turned cows into carnivores and cannibals. Uh, SARS and COVID-19 have been traced back to the exotic wild animal trade. But our last pandemic, uh, swine flu in 2009, arose not from some backwater wet market in Asia, but was largely made in the USA on pig operations in the United States. Now, uh, thankfully, swine flu only killed about a half million people, but the next time, we might not be so lucky. Why was this so different? Uh, Well, what made this one different is because um, uh, the... People became infe- are infectious within the incubation period, and so that right. is the period between which you're infected and it starts showing symptoms. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, we were able to stop these other coronavirus outbreaks like SARS and MERS because you didn't become infected in after until you became um, infected. But in this case, um, uh, you're, you know, you, every, uh, with every breath you take, um, you know, by day three or four, um, after coming into an infectious contact, you're spreading this virus to those in your household, those out in the community that you come in close contact with. Um, and so that's why, wait a second, if you don't know who's infected and who's not, because you can't tell by symptoms yet, who knows who's going to come down with symptoms the next day and have been infected for infectious for 48 hours, um, because you don't know who's infected, you have to lock down everybody and prevent as many social contacts as possible. And that has been effective in flattening the curve, preventing the overwhelming of our medical systems, um, and giving people a fighting chance to survive this pandemic. Um, and so what we need to do now is, you know, stick to the CDC reopening criteria, which unfortunately states are not doing, uh, protecting the most vulnerable, um, this kind of layered social distancing, pumping the brakes to prevent the healthcare system um, uh, from becoming overwhelmed until the virus can be stopped, either through vaccine or natural herd immunity. So I'm in the New York, New Jersey area. And what making me a little bit nervous is it seems like we're going from zero to 360. And I don't mean the government, I mean people. It's like some people, it's almost like letting the animals out of the zoo. I think <laughs> some people are doing very right. reckless things. And that's what's making me nervous. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's this real kind of black and white thinking going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's this kind of pandemic fatigue. People have been locked up. All of a sudden, the weather starts coming um, uh, you know, here in the Northeast, the weather's uh, getting better, and people just, you know, just getting kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of getting getting crazy, uh, locked inside. And so, fine, go out. In fact, being outdoors, um, the the the, uh, the risk of infection is very low because of the just natural ventilation, the dilution out in the air. So, unless you're talking to someone. Um, you know, close within, you know, three, six feet, um, uh, you know, you should, or, or uh, you know, someone coughs in your face, um, being outdoors is a really a low-risk, um, uh, uh, you know, scenario. It's really the confined indoor spaces uh, where you can't escape people, you can't uh, properly distance. So absolutely go outside, but that doesn't mean we have to um, uh, you know, uh, you know, crowd ourselves together outside. Right, go to the beach, but just try to stay away from people um, because you don't know who's, who's infected. Um, and so, and particularly uh, for those with, again, these pre-existing conditions and those over the age 65 or anyone who has contact with anyone over um, age 65. So you can imagine a young person who's like, you know, I'm at such low risk going out and having a beer with friends, but they don't know the price of that beer may be the death of their grandparents. Dr. Greger's new ebook is How to Survive a Pandemic. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Greger and his work, you can visit michaelgreger.org or nutritionfacts.org. And as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com, which stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. Dr. Gregor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be on. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. It's time for To Your Health. 
Joining us today is Eileen Lashinsky, the founder and creator of Find Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, she realized that the answers to her struggles were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom and to find body freedom. She is here today to discuss how today's culture sends women mixed messages. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Joan, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you. So, Eileen, let's dive right in. There is so much to talk about regarding this topic. You believe that women receive mixed messages. What type of messages are we talking about? Well, we're talking about messages in some key areas of our lives. And if we look at women in the workplace, if we look at women and femininity slash authenticity in those areas. So let me just dive into those. You know, we're, we're told, and more and more these days, as opposed to when I was a child, but we're told that we can achieve anything we want to achieve. And there are so many parents out there who are telling their daughters, you can be whatever you want to be. And Yet, there are mechanisms in place to hold us back from exactly that. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the number of females in um, the political arena, and the percentage is so far less than of men. And it, thank goodness it's growing, um, but we're not there yet. We're over 50% of the population of this country, and we are not reflected in our govern, governing bodies. And you look at girls who are growing into women and wanting to be CEOs of companies. They want to be the head of a company. And yet there is still existing this glass ceiling where, again, if you look at the number of women who run companies, there are far fewer than men. And then salaries. What's the um, uh, what's the number now? I think it's women earn 70 cents on every dollar that a man earns. And so, you know, there's a 30 cent differential. Well, extrapolate that to dollars and thousands of dollars and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you've got us way behind the eight ball in terms of uh, achieving salary parity. And then there's this other more maybe subtle, maybe not so subtle, that uh, girl children are uh, on a par with boys in school, even in terms of being graded uh, smarter than boys. And then something happens in adolescence. What happens in adolescence? We get dumb. I do not think so. Mm-hmm. But there's something about what happens to girls and the expectations of becoming a woman, becoming an adolescent, when our hormones start to, um, I was going to say rage in our bodies, or at least start to flow more freely uh, in our bodies. And there's something about uh, a shift in how we should be um, out there in the world, how we should be perceived, and how we should perform out there in the world. And there are messages that girls entering adolescence still receive that you should be sweet and demure and you should not be as smart as your male counterpart, your, you know, the boys in your class. Men and boys don't like smart women. And again, thank goodness, this is all changing but in more subtle ways now than before. That's still out there. So you just described what happens from childhood into the early adult years. Let's take it a step further. How do these messages impact the way a woman develops into the later years as being a wife, mother, professional in the work world? I think that um, uh, it's a, a problem because women oftentimes will feel that they're forced to choose one or the other. I'm going to be a wife and a mother, or I'm going to be in the workforce. Now, we certainly know of lots of women who have chosen to do both, 
And thank goodness there's more of an opportunity for us to make those kinds of choices. Yet there are not systems in place to support that. When we look at uh, maternity leave, Uh, in our country versus as in other countries. Is our maternity leave paid? Are we guaranteed our jobs when we return from childbirth and those first, I was going to say, few months? In some cases, it's few weeks. So systems aren't necessarily in place to support us when we want to say, I can do it all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If there is indeed such a thing, I can have it all if indeed there is such a thing. But sometimes just the obstacles that women have to overcome, whether it's about the systems that are in place or whether it's about the perception of what happens if I'm really bright and I'm really smart and I really could do that job, but um, my body's larger than a lot of people think of as a bright, smart intelligent woman. Um, And sometimes women don't even try for those kinds of positions or any position uh, because of their body image holding them back. There's a common story for women, and you just described it, where, you know, that maybe they go to college or they believe they're going to have this life, and then they put all of that on hold for the family. And then one day when they're in their 40s and even 50s, they they seem like they wake up and say, what about me? You know, what is there out there that I can do? What can I achieve? And so when somebody's having this, let's call it an awakening, what can that woman do to turn those messages around, believe in herself and start that life that she's always dreamt about having? Uh, uh, I think you're making a wonderful point here, and that awakening can happen at whatever age. There are some um, children who have awakening, teenagers who have awakenings, and some of us women have awakenings later on in our lives. At whatever point it happens, we need to take that moment and run with it. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Firstly, being able to say, I am worth this, whatever the this is, I am worth this, and I can do this, and I'm going, I've got the wherewithal to figure this out, maybe not by myself, whether I need some emotional or psychological help, because I felt so, um, what, uh, trapped for so long, uh, then Uh, I can get some counseling or get some therapy. Uh, Whether it's about I don't know how to start my own business. And one of the wonderful things is we know that there is a growing number of women who have become entrepreneurs later on in their lives. And this is fabulous for us. So we don't have all of that expertise, but all we have to do is, is go online and find a coaching program or a me- uh, that deals with how to start a business or the Small Business uh, Association or the Women's Business Associations that are out there. And we have mentors all over the place. We just have to have the wherewithal. And I think to um, uh, be okay with saying, I'm feeling vulnerable in this area, and stepping out of that into, it takes a tremendous amount of strength to say, this is what I want, and this is what I know I don't know, And I'm going to search out the tools in order to get what I want and to become who I want. That's great advice, Eileen. And and if our listeners would like to learn more about Eileen and her work, you can visit findbodyfreedom.com. And as always, to hear more from Eileen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Eileen. Eileen, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Joan. I just so enjoyed our time together. We'll be right back. Have you tried unsuccessfully to change a health habit? Were you motivated to make that change? Were you prepared and ready to make that change or not? 
Hi, I'm Lori Gardner, registered nurse, patient advocate, and board-certified health and wellness coach. I am the CEO and founder of HealthLink Advocates, a firm dedicated to assisting people navigate our very complex healthcare system. We also provide coaching to individuals and groups that want to improve their health and well-being. Changing a long-standing bad health habit like overeating or being sedentary is hard. You may spend a lot of time learning about different diets and exercise, and then more time on which one to choose. I am here to say you should spend more time on learning about the stages of change we all go through and how knowing this can help everything. According to James Prochaska, there are six stages of change. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and recycling. Understanding what stage of change you are in helps to make the change in a systematic way. You get ready to be ready. Then you prepare for the change by identifying old habits that don't serve you. You then contemplate the change and prepare what new steps you will take and habits you will develop towards that healthy goal. You are then in action mode, and hopefully you have an accountability partner as part of your preparation steps. To learn more, be sure to read James Prochaska's book, Changing for Good. If you need a health and wellness coach to partner with, please contact us at healthlinkadvocates.com. with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. We all experience pain and we accept it as being human. Pain is such a big player in our lives that we search for ways to relieve it, which often brings more pain. According to today's guest, Guy Finley, we don't need to crumble under our pain. He says that we can learn how to use it in the right way in order to find new power and inner freedom. Guy is the best-selling author of The Secret of Letting Go and 40 other works. He's been a guest on national media and is the founder and director of the Life of Learning Foundation. Welcome, Guy. Thanks for joining us. It is such a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you, Joan. You know, I always enjoy our time together. Well, Guy, I, I like this topic because pain is something that we all experience and no one can escape it. But Much of the time, we think that it's just a normal part of life, and we accept it. And it seems like this pain is getting deeper and deeper. If you look at statistics, suicide is up, and people feel lost, and they're anxious, and they're depressed. So what is it that you believe is happening that's making us feel this way? Well, first and foremost, I would say, honestly, that what we do is we resist the pain Mm -hmm. that comes with this life because a part of us and much to answer your question, believes that who and what we are is uh, somehow meant to walk through this life without any suffering at all, and that if we do have any pain, it's because we've missed the mark or otherwise failed to become what whatever it is that we imagined we were supposed to do or to be. And that idea drives us, the idea of becoming something uh, special, recognized, known, loved, whatever it may be, creates a, a kind of back pressure inside of us that we have no awareness of whatsoever uh, because all we know to do is to serve the idea that says we're supposed to be like this and then the pain of not hitting the mark, if you will, uh, validates the pain. So we're caught in a loop where we're convinced on one hand uh, of what we are meant to do, the purpose of our life, and can't reconcile that there's a relationship between this pain that won't go away that we resist and the fact that we have misunderstood the purpose of our life. So that's the main thrust of what I'm talking about. So Guy, when you're going through these difficult times, you know negativity, those thoughts, they prevail. And then those thoughts create emotions and experience, which therefore perpetuate the thoughts. And that's the cycle. So what advice do you offer to help someone become conscious of those thoughts and make a switch. You know, this is a, a big a big question, Joan. Let me tell, I know we have precious few moments, so I'll run through this story very quickly. Imagine a man who goes to a third world, fourth world country. To He's an anthropologist. He wants to study open air markets and the interaction of the native people. And so he finds himself uh, on the way to one of these open air markets when over the hill comes something that astonishes him. It's, it's a man uh, and a cart and a donkey, but... The donkey has saddled the man, and the man is pulling the cart that's full of sugarcane, chickens, and whatever produce is going to market. The anthropologist can't believe his eyes. Uh, How could a donkey saddle a man? So knowing the language, he goes and he comes to the man. He says, sir, uh, 
I don't understand. What tradition is this? The donkey's riding you and that you're pulling the cart. And the man looks at him, smiles sheepishly and says, well, that's the only way I could get the donkey to go to the market. The point here is that we have become saddled with the false belief that somehow or other, living and allowing negative states to tell us who we are and what we have to do by using this whip of pain to produce the results it wants, we, we become a compromised race of beings. We are never meant to be subordinate to our own thoughts and feelings, let alone negative states that define and confine us. Everything, Joan, is upside down. So when you ask, what can we do? It begins with helping to be reminded of the fact that we are not meant to be saddled with useless pain, unworthy, undignified, corruptive, negative thoughts and feelings. Once we understand that, if we can feel the truth of it, then when something tries to mount us and drive us to market, so to speak, we can uh, recognize, experience the presence of that familiar pain in its pattern and understand, all right, look, you are not my boss. I, you don't ride me. In fact, you don't belong in my life, let alone uh, saddling me. So, Guy, once we recognize that pain, then how do we turn it into power? That's the beauty of what we're talking about, Joan. Do I need power if I can wake up and recognize where I'm agreeing to be made powerless? I'm going to re I'll say it again. If, if my problem is unawareness of the fact that roles have been reversed, I have become the subject of my own thoughts and feelings, and that in that subjugation, I am made to suffer in the pursuit of their ends and goals. Do I need to do anything other than become aware of how I have agreed to be made powerless? Isn't the search for power in our lives the attempt to overcome what presently overcomes us. And if we see that what we're overcome by is a mistaken relationship with our own thoughts and feelings, then the moment that awareness grows, so does the powerlessness disappear. So once we see pain for what it is, we're released. Yes, it, it is not our authority. Look, when you have a toothache, God forbid, how many of us know that when we have a toothache, we're not exactly uh, running a four-minute mile to get to the dentist. Agreed? Mm-hmm. Maybe not for you. For me <laughs> and most people I know, right. the minute you have some unknown pain or one that promises to produce more, the last thing you want to do is deal with it. Right. Now, when we don't deal with our consciousness of that awareness of pain, does the pain get better or worse? Well, it goes physically. deeper. That's exactly right. It is rooting itself deeper. Now we're talking physically right now. And it and what is the power by which it is rooting itself deeper into our life, bringing more pain eventually right. than what we've avoided? Right. And the answer is something in us resists the awareness of that pain or problem. Now, take that idea and move it over to psychological or emotional pain. When we have a pain, a sense of disappointment, of being betrayed, of feeling empty, that feeling of pain is in fact a kind of messenger. It is initially a revelation in our own psyche that's trying to reach us and tell us something is wrong. We're missing the mark. Now, where we go wrong is that when we feel like we're missing the mark and begin to suffer that pain, we listen to the pain tell us what to do to heal us. An example, I'm, st I'm struggling because I'm working already 18 hours a day, 90 days a week. I thought it would make me free if I could get financially secure. I got some security, but I still don't feel wealthy enough. So my pain of being completely cut off from life tells me, well, guy, the way to be feel better and get rid of this pain is to do more of what didn't heal you the first time. So we have to learn to be able to see and to listen to the part of us that's trying to tell us, all right, something is out of alignment here, and then have the courage to recognize that the pain that we're experiencing cannot bring an end to itself, 
we must discover the source of that disconnect and that lives in our own consciousness. Guy, thank you so much for being here with us today. We allow pain to infiltrate every area of our life and by listening to what you're saying and and allowing some of your strategies into our life, we can move through it and and really be able to feel more gratitude and and blessings and joy. So thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome and let us all agree to learn how to use this pain instead of letting it use us. We'll be right back. Time is often viewed as the passing minutes measured by the clock or as a stream of the days marked on a calendar. If you strictly view time from this viewpoint, you will fall short of getting the full value of the future awaiting you. Did you know that time has two dimensions? The dimensions are hours and energy. By wasting one, we waste the other. Conversely, by preserving one, we preserve the other. Dimension is defined as a measurable extent of some kind, such as length, breadth, depth, or height. If we perceive the time we are given as a gift, then the energy we put into everything we do will amplify the time we have. What you put in is what you will ultimately get out, a time ROI. Therefore, managing our time and our lives well will reap great rewards. Time is not given to us. It is made available to us. We don't own it. We only have the privilege of using it. Good time management isn't simply about getting more done in less time. It's about getting the right things done at the right time. It's not just about efficiency, it's about effectiveness. And effectiveness requires focus and discipline. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to reach out to me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit my website, staronprofessional.com. Do you feel like you live in your head? constantly thinking or constantly worrying? Do you sometimes feel so overwhelmed that you feel your head is spinning? Hi, I'm Carrie Curapito from KP Holistic Health and Fitness. I'm a yoga teacher, Reiki master, and holistic health and lifestyle coach. I see so many people that live everyday life without taking the time to get grounded. What does that mean? One of the very first things I teach my yoga students and all of my clients is how to get grounded, to feel your connection to Mother Earth. We all need balance, and if you're directing too much energy into your thoughts, it's easy to feel off balance. You need a good, solid foundation to stand on. Think of a tree. A tree gets its nourishment from the soil of the earth. I want you to imagine you are a tree with your roots deep into the earth, feeling stable and on solid ground, feeling the energy connection between you and the earth, knowing all of your basic needs are met, showing gratitude for having your basic needs met. We are all faced with challenges that help us to grow. Know that this is a part of your journey. Connect with the earth to keep yourself grounded and balanced. Want to learn more? Visit my website at knpholistic.com or call 973-823-1600. Book an appointment with me today. Namaste. Many of us wake up each day and feel overwhelmed with the thoughts of how much has to get done that day. Would it be helpful to set realistic goals for the day? Hi, I'm Jessica L. Conrad. I'm a certified life coach. I have a master's in holistic health studies. I am a member of Resolve and of the ICF New Jersey. I support women who feel they are at a crossroads in life by helping them find clarity and direction. I specialize in helping women with infertility and reproductive disorders. If you answered yes to these questions, then I have three questions you can ask yourself each morning to help organize your goals. Number one, what would you like to accomplish today? Two, why is this important to you? Three, what's one measure that you'll know you were successful? You can write the answers each day and refer back to them to keep you on track. For more information or to contact me, please visit my website at jessicalconrad.com. There, you will also be able to book a free 20-minute discovery call. We all want 
want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Heidi Rome, an Autism Moms Coach and founder of Mom Spectrum Oasis. Heidi's Autism Hope Mindset System empowers a mom to take back her life while creating a bright future for her Spectrum child. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. It's a pleasure to be here. Heidi, you've spoken on this program about your autism path with your younger son, Ethan, and we know that he's now 14 and that he has severe autism that limits his ability to speak, and it can trigger disruptive behaviors when he becomes upset from sensory overload. Our listeners have heard your story about the conversation that you had with Ethan when he was 11, and that was via the spelling to communicate typing technique. And that conversation transformed your sadness and fear into a new perspective about autism, and that autism is not a tragedy to be overcome, but instead a spiritual path to be embraced. So today, Heidi, what I'd like to do is challenge you a bit about Ethan's advice, which was, you just have to love me. And in that challenge, I want to talk about love. What does ancient wisdom teach us about love? And how can we apply these practical lessons to the autism journey? We've already touched upon the biblical aspect and the Chinese language. And today I want to talk about Greek wisdom. So let's start there. What does ancient Greek wisdom teach us about love? Well, you know, Joan, there are actually several words for love in in Greek, and um, I'm going to be focused on one of them. I think that's actually amazing that there were so many words for love, because um, Plato and Aristotle, for example, they recognize all the different varieties, and they use different words to describe and distinguish each each type. And I'll just name a bunch of them. Um, some of them we've heard of, others we probably haven't. Um, Eros, which named after the Greek god of fertility, uh, sexual passion. Then there's philia, like in uh, the name Philadelphia, which describes deep friendship uh, among people who are you know fighting something together. Uh, there's ludus, which is playful love. Uh, agape, which is selfless love, and that's I'm going to be coming back to that one. Uh, there's pragma, which is a practical love, and um, there's one called philousia or self-love, which is um, a really fascinating one because there are two varieties of it, the unhealthy kind that we associate with narcissism, uh, and also then the healthy vital type where we realize that it's in expanding and enhancing our own personal capacity to love and take care of ourselves and have love and compassion and acceptance for ourselves, that we expand that as the foundation from which to give to others. Um, but I'm, I'm going to be focusing today on uh, agape, which is um, selfless love expressed through acts of service. How can we apply the concept of agape to Ethan's parenting instruction of, you just have to love me? In that original exchange that you mentioned, Joan, in which that, that profound exchange in which that changed my life, when I asked Ethan, what can we do to help you on the journey? His first response to me was, I have to fulfill my journey as prescribed by God. And it was only after I pressed him further for a more detailed answer that he answered, you just have to love me and that is your job. The rest is my job to do. So he did not say, your job is to fix me. Your job is to change me. Your job is to cure me. Your only job is to love me or your job is to love me perfectly. I heard that as my job is to love him unconditionally. And this is where agape comes in, to accept him for the wonderful totality of who and what he is. And it's not even based on him as an individual. It's based on him as just a human being, because agape is not rooted in the wonderful qualities of an individual, whether or not someone deserves love. It really is more than that. It's a higher level. Um, it's, it's loving someone for just the sense that they're human, they're another holy soul, and it's in the, the service of him doing my best as his mom to guide him to his own potential that helps me while it helps him, that to me is is agape. So agape is broader 
than an individual selfish or self-centered love. It's to act from a concern for humanity, uh, a sense of justice, um, you know, beyond personal idea. I act best for Ethan when I do something that is useful, of course, to him, but also if it's useful to other kids. It's not only benefiting Ethan, but maybe it's helping other kids with autism, you know, because I'm always looking at everything through the lens of how is this going to help my own kid with autism and how is this going to help other autism moms? And when I view everything through that lens, I am working from the perspective of of agape. So that is really, to me, you know, how agape is at play in my everyday life with Ethan, you know, and that analysis of this word, just as with Hebrew and with Chinese, it is in the giving of compassionate, accepting, inspired action in the highest service of another, that all three ancient cultures are agreeing with Ethan's advice. You know, you just have to love me and that is your job. The the rest is my job to do. Because when we do that, when when every human being has the job of loving the other, loving ourselves and loving others as we love ourselves, eventually that will lead to world peace. You know, the prophesied new world of universal love without war. Um, when we all come from agape, we will have arrived for all humanity, you know, at that new idyllic place with or without autism, because in that glowing new world, that distinction of having someone of someone having autism or not will not matter because the world will be like our loving God, as indicated in Hebrew and Chinese and Greek, the world will be as one. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to get more information about Heidi and her work, you can visit MomsSpectrumOasis.com. That's moms with an S, MomsSpectrumOasis.com. Or as always, you can hear more from Heidi by visiting our website, com slash Heidi. She wants to be home with her friends. But at this moment, she's fighting a brain tumor. Please take a moment and join St. Jude in finding cures and saving children. Visit stjude.org. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.